Last week we started a new series. We're in the book of James, and the series is called Faith in the Fire. Faith in the Fire. What does faith look like when you are facing trials? Now, we started that series, Faith in the Fire. Then I took my daughter uh, and my son to dinner at Panda Express. Have you ever been to Panda Express? It's not bad. It's not chai tongue, but it's not bad. And so they give you fortune cookies at the end of the meal. And I have to read the fortune. Here's what it said. Uh, uh, It said, you are going to have a very comfortable life. Panda Express. So what I'm realizing is, we started this series next week about trials, but really this is going to help all of you people because I'm not going to have any more problems for the rest of my life, according to this fortune. In fact, I'm going to have a very comfortable life. Uh, this is not true. I would, I would like it to be true. I would really like it if God, honestly, I would really like it if God did give me a very comfortable life. If you're honest, you would like it if God gave you a very comfortable life from now until the end, nothing but very comfortable living. That's not going to happen. That's not the way this world is designed. That's not the way God's plan will play out for you. When troubles come into your life, you start wondering why. How did this happen? Why did this happen? You want easier days. How could we embrace trials as believers? The book of James answers that question. We'll see that there are six major sources of pain that James covers. And James wants to answer this question. What does faith look like when life gets hard? How do I live out my faith when there is a crisis that comes? Uh, James is a pastor. You can tell these were sermons that he preached and then he converted them into a collection. They're so practical. He has a giant heart for hurting people and he walks the dusty trails of your life. You'll feel like he's talking right to you. James was also the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew the humanity of Jesus like no one else. He knows that Jesus is the one who can get you through any trial because he walked the earth in your shoes. James is going to help us to walk by faith through the fire. Let's pray and then we'll get into the book together. We thank you, O Father, that you've given us books like the book of James that talks about so many different problems. We ask that you would give us perspective on our pain. We ask, O Lord, that you would give us faith as we walk through the fire. Help us, Lord, as we draw near to you, draw near to us, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to the book of James, the book of James, chapter 1. If you missed the intro to this new series, it can be found on our website or our app. You can get all the sermons on the app. I recommend that you catch up by listening to that sermon because it, it gave you a, an overview of the whole book. And we're, this is kind of the first official sermon from the new book. Uh, But you need that intro so that you have more understanding of where this whole book came from. In James chapter 1, verse 2, we'll learn how we can embrace trials. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. These three verses will be the whole message. These three verses set up, in many ways, the rest of the whole book. How do I embrace trials? Again and again, he shows us how we can embrace a multitude of trials. He begins by saying, count it all joy. I don't know about you, but I see the word joy 
and I like that word. Then I see the word trial, and I don't like that word. What are joy and trial doing in the same verse? I'll tell you what, I'll count it all joy. I'll count it all joy when my trials are over. I'll count it all joy when I don't have a trial in my life. But count it all joy when I face trials of many kinds? That just seems wrong. Seems like this shouldn't be in the same verse. How can I count it all joy when I have so many trials? Basically, here's what this is saying. Write this down. Number one, to embrace trials. When trials begin, worship louder. Count it all joy. Worship louder when the trial begins. Express your joy in your pain. The Bible is not saying turn the pain off. You can't. When your child is breaking your heart, when the doctors can't figure out what's wrong, You can't turn off the pain. It would be foolish to try to turn off the pain. You would look silly pretending you've turned off the pain. The Bible's not saying joy is the only emotion you should be feeling. Do you understand that? There will be pain. But joy gets the last word. After all of your fears have spoken, joy gets to be expressed. When... When pain comes to your front door, don't let joy sneak out the back. Allow your joy and your pain to become closely acquainted in your heart. You can't do that alone. Only God can teach you to learn joy in your trial. It says here we have to count it all joy. That's a thought command. Sometimes the Bible commands us to do things. Sometimes the Bible says we need to think things. This is a thought command, which means you're responsible for what you're thinking when a trial breaks out. Count it, reckon it, consider it joy. That means your mind is filled with thoughts of how this is going to enhance your joy. How can that even be possible? Why would this be the mindset that I choose when my life falls apart? It's because you trust there's a divine purpose. It's because you trust that God has a plan. That's where the joy comes from. The joy doesn't come from the pain. Oh, make it hurt more. I want it to be worse. No. The joy comes from the plan that God has for the pain. Only God can teach you to learn joy when pain comes. The Bible says here, count it all joy, my brothers. That's such an affectionate term. Family talk there. It means brothers. It can include sisters. But hey, hey, family, family, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. The word meet there means It could mean fall into or or fall upon or hit by. Sometimes a trial feels like you're falling down. You ever watch the Winter Olympics? I love the Winter Olympics, but my favorite moments in the Winter Olympics is is the great wipeouts that you see. Whether it's the ice skater or the skier or whatever, check it out. This is an Olympic wipeout. This poor guy in Sochi, he slipped and fell, and look at that look on his face. In front of the whole world, he is skidding down the mountain and there is no way to stop. That image of falling is, is what's in this verse when you fall into trials. It's embarrassing to fall down in public. It's humiliating to fall in front of people, let alone the whole world after you've trained your life for this moment. And you will fall into 
trials, or you'll fall upon trials, which means it'll be painful, there'll be a collision, there'll be a collision between you and the ground when this trial smacks you. Who's ever seen the TV show Wipeout? Have you ever seen the TV show Wipeout? Raise your hand if you've seen that. My goodness, I'd love to go on that show. But one of my favorite episodes is this episode where they have this thing called the smack wall. And uh, I, I grabbed a clip from it, but check this out from Wipeout. You're going to love it. Throughout time, engineers have built the Taj Mahal, the Great Wall of China, the Grand Canyon, and now <laughs> the smack wall. I can watch that all day long. I can't get enough of that. Go, 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 bam! They fall down. Uh, the word fall is humiliating. You don't want to fall. You want to get hit by something. But the Bible describes you meeting a trial as if you've fallen into it, as if you've been collided, you've fallen onto it. Uh, that's often how it feels when you face a crisis in your life. It's just bam, out of nowhere. How can I consider it all joy or pure joy when I'm face down in the mud? It's because you know God has a plan. It says count it all joy or pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The word trial there, it, it can mean a trial that comes your way that isn't your fault. So your company takes a hit, you get fired. Okay, that's a trial. It's, it's testing your faith. It's hard. <clears throat> you didn't really do anything to deserve it. The Bible also describes trials that are your fault. You stole from the company and you got fired. Okay, a bit of a different trial. There's a lot. You have to sift through the blame on that one before you just act like a victim. But these principles still apply. When you get caught and God allows the consequences of your sin to come into your life, you're going to learn from that trial. But there's also temptation that starts within us. So your marriage isn't going so well, and then another woman comes along, and you are suddenly drawn to her. That's a temptation. You have to understand that God will never tempt you to evil. Too often I talk to people who their marriage needs a lot of work, and I say, hey, if you commit to doing this, whatever it takes to save our marriage, God will save your marriage. And then one person says something like, yeah, I just don't know. I met somebody else, and I just feel like God finally brought me the right one. And I say, when you have a ring on your finger, a man who comes along is never from God. Because God will never tempt you to evil. Where did that person come from? You can figure it out on your own. God will never, if you see your problem and there's a sinful solution sitting on the table, God did not put it there. Struggling financially and uh uh-oh, if I cut some corners, I can get the money over. God did not put that there. God will never tempt you to evil. Listen. You never need to cross over into sin to get out of your trial. That's not from God. So when temptation comes, that is never from God. That's your desires following the temptation of the enemy, pulling you off the track. Here's the thing, though. This word for trial in the Greek, it can mean both at the same time. It can mean you're tempted to do evil while you're tested by hardship. And often, the the moment that God tries your faith and life gets hard is the moment Satan comes to lure you away. All right? So the the trial, the test, can come from within or on the outside. But you'll fall into it. You'll smack upon it. 
You have to be ready to worship louder. Count it all joy. Listen, that functionally, practically means get to church, open your mouth, force the words out. You can't drift away and get quiet. That's not what it means to count it all joy. You've got to be in the presence of the family of God. You've got to sing. There's nothing as, nothing as awesome as, uh, as seeing Christians sing during hard trials. It's such a blessing to me as a pastor when I know what some of you are going through and I see you here and I see you singing. That means so much to me. I know it means so much to the Lord. Worship louder. I'll never forget in 2008 when I was at the DuPage County Fair, Stephen Curtis Chapman was doing an outdoor concert. And maybe you remember the story in May when the Chapmans uh, endured every parent's worst nightmare when their five-year-old daughter was hit on their own driveway by a pickup truck driven by their son. And she went on to heaven. Five-year-old daughter, they, in May, in May. And now it's July, same year. And there he is on stage. And it's dark. I'm, I didn't stay for the concert. I was just there to get tickets and stuffed animals for my kids. So I was on my way to the parking garage. And, and he started talking about his trial in front of thousands of people. And I stopped. And I turned around. The family's in the van. And I turned around. And I started listening. And he's talking about the pain they endured as a family. And some of his sons are on the stage in his band. And, and the pain. And they, how they thought about canceling the concert. And he said, how can we sing the song, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. How can we sing that year after year after year and not sing it right now? I can't tell you how, how powerful that moment was. I was frozen listening to this man of God talk about his trial. And then he sang that song in front of all of those people. I was stuck. I was amazed. Not at him, at his God. When you sing during your trial, the world watches. Your fellow believers watch. Count it all joy. It says when you meet trials of various kinds, Various kinds. We learned last week that there, there are many more than this, but there are six basic trials that uh, James uses to, um, to grow your faith. He talks about conflict. You will have problems that have names. Those are called people, and they'll make your life a lot harder than it is right now. <laughs> they'll test and try your faith. Money will, be, uh, money, money will be an ongoing trial in your heart, whether you have too much or too little, whether you are tested by affluence or want. They're both trials. Physical illness, that will be something that uh, hits you, that knocks you down, drives you into a pit. There's also words, the words that you have said that have caused you great pain, the words that others have said to you that have caused you deep pain. You can't forget there's also time, which makes every other trial harder. How long will this go on? I feel like this should be done. Time makes every other trial harder. And then there's the trial of love, which is people in your life who need more than others. They, they, they have a great need. And James talks about the orphans and the widows in the church who are needy. And maybe you're going through a season where you need people so much more than you did. You need them to love you, and they're not. And that's a trial. These are the various kinds of trials that will test and grow your faith. When trials begin, when these hit you, you have to worship louder. 
Number two, jot this down. Know that trials prove and grow your faith. Fill that in. Trials prove your faith is real, and trials grow your faith to be stronger. That happens at the same time. Why would God allow these? Well, look at verse 3. It says, for you know, he's reminding you something you already know. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We learned last week that that word testing is used in the Old Testament of testing or refining a precious metal like gold or silver. Uh, When gold comes out of the ground, it's not in its most precious and valuable form. It's all covered in in other rock and ore that that is worthless. So you actually have to melt it down uh, to then sift off all of the junk, and then you're left with the gold. Here's a picture of how they refine gold. You have to melt it down, and that takes heat. They have to set it on fire until it's liquefied. Why do they do that? Well, because in the end, you get gold bars, and here's a picture of those, and if you can score one of those, they're $400,000 a piece, I think. It's so precious and valuable uh, after it's been refined and purified. Your faith works the same way. God will set your faith on fire to purge it of impurity, to make it more valuable than ever, and these are the tools he uses to make it stronger. Trials grow your faith. They make your faith stronger. Uh, Have any of you been in the military in the past? Raise your hand up if you've been through boot camp. Raise your hand up if you've been through boot camp in any of the branches of the armed service. Great, so thankful for your service. Uh, You'll probably never forget how when you arrived at boot camp, they laid out all the sofas and gave you blankets, a cup of hot chocolate, then the masseuse showed up, had you lay down and rubbed your back for you a little bit. Do you remember those times? Do you remember those times? No! Because that would, a spa, a boot camp spa, would produce a horrible soldier. It has to be hard. You have to be cold. You have to be hungry. You have to be tired. You have to be angry. Why? Because a stronger soldier comes out the other side. The military knows that. And God knows that too. So how does your faith get stronger? Not on the sofa. In the fire. God will set your faith on fire. He will try and test your faith to make it stronger. He'll do it. Faith can be tested. So what are some tests that you've taken in your life? Name a test. What, what test do you take? A spelling test, an ACT test. Those focus on the mind. Are there other tests that you take? What's that? Stress test. How's my heart? Focusing on the body. Driver's ed test, right? Coordination. Are you, should you be behind the wheel? There's all these tests you can take. Test for the mind. Test for the body. There's, your faith can be tested. There is a faith test. It makes your faith stronger. These are the different tests that your faith can take. Relational conflict. Financial stress. Physical illness. Hurtful words. Time and delay. Needy people or a needy season of your life. God will set your faith on fire. He'll put it in the furnace to make it stronger and better, make it more pure. But honestly, since we were in kindergarten, we've been learning that if anything of you catches on fire, you do what? Stop, drop, and roll. Fire, you put out fire right away, and you don't play with matches in the house. Right? There was Smokey the Bear. He got on and talked about preventing forest fires. We learned. Fire bad. God didn't get that lesson, I guess. Because he will set your faith on fire. 
Check this out. Here's a picture of a girl celebrating her 16th birthday. Check it out. You want to see it again? Let's watch it again. Okay. Do I see it again? You're sick. You are sick if you want to see that again. I watched it like 10 times this week. Couldn't get enough of it. You would do the same if anything caught on fire. Your hair, your shirt, your pants, your boots, doesn't matter. You would be the same. Putting it out, right? You would scream just like her. Admit it. You would. Because fire is bad. But according to God, fire is good. The testing of your faith, setting it on fire, is good. How can that be? Well, because it's going to produce something. It's going to produce something called steadfastness. Steadfastness is a compound word in the Greek, hupomene, it means to stay under. It's not a passive term. It doesn't mean you are under it and you're like, fine, I'll just stay here and let you roll over me with the steamer. It's not, it's an active standing firm under the weight of your trial. You're not running, you're not quitting, you're not hiding, you're staying under it with a joyful heart. It's impossible to do that without the strength of the Spirit. When you know that trials are growing your faith, you will have the confidence to stay under it, even when you feel like your whole life is on fire. God gives us the reason why we have to stay under it. It says it produces steadfastness. Steadfastness means the load limit your faith is able to bear will go up. When you're a born-again Christian, your load limit is not very much. Sadly, though, many people have been in church for a long time, and they have never stayed under the hardship or the trial. They have bailed through sin, or they've escaped through some other means, and they haven't grown mature. It's sad to see a Christian who's been in church for so long, and the slightest breeze of adversity causes them to rethink all that they know about God. That's not a grown-up faith. That person has been running away from trials for a long time. Check it out. This guy is trying to lift and grow stronger, but it's never going to happen when he's just holding that. He's not holding more than he can lift back up. The way muscles work is if you you take down more than you can lift back up, the muscles will tear and then they'll grow back stronger. Faith is the same way. If all you're doing is you're just going to lift up what you can always lift up, what you've always lifted up, and no more, you're never going to grow. Check this out, though. These semi-trucks can carry a lot of weight. Look at this. That's strength. That's power. And that's what God wants you to be. He wants you to be capable of bearing more weight, spiritual weight in your life, in your family, in your church, in your marriage. He wants to toughen you up. He doesn't want you to be weak, wimpy. He wants you to be able to stand strong in hurricane force winds. And that can't happen when a little breeze knocks you off your feet. Know that trials will grow your faith. But listen, trials also prove your faith, which means trials prove whether you have faith or not. 
When the going gets tough, if you bolt from God, if you question how God can do this, if you leave behind whatever you said you had, there's a chance that you never had faith in Christ in the first place. If you're only around church and Jesus when times are good, maybe you're here for the goodie bag. And when God takes the goodie bag away, you leave because you're not willing to go on with Christ through hard times. I was at a church before, and tragically, there was a couple who, uh, uh, they were pregnant, and they, and they had a miscarriage further along in the pregnancy, and that's what it took. They left. And I called them and said, where, where are you at? We love it. Oh, we just, we just can't do this. Done. Spiritually done. The time they needed their church and their Lord the most, they're gone. And it just makes you wonder if they ever had faith. If that's what it took for them to end it all with Christ, was it ever even there? Same is true with you. If a trial makes you turn and leave, what is it that you were truly here for? Some people fail the test. They don't have saving faith. They don't have Christ in their life. A trial comes and they look around and God is nowhere to be found and they find themselves asking, where is God? Where is God? And listen, I mentioned this last week. Everything that caused pain in your life was God's way of showing you how much you need His Son. Why did God allow that in your childhood? Why did God allow that to happen in your young adult years? The answer is simple. He wants you to know how much you need His Son. All of the pain in this life is meant to drive you humbly on your face before the Good Shepherd Jesus, who alone can see you safely through this world. If you have never been on your knees before Christ saying, I need you, I need you to save me, I need you to help me, this is the message God is sending you through your trial. The message is this, you need my son right now. If you have never responded to that truth, you're going it alone. The pain in this world is trying to get you to see your need for the son. If you refuse to repent, if you refuse to get on your face before Christ and you keep proudly going it alone, I'm going to make it through this. The pain will never end. Not in this life and never after this life. You will be in pain and misery for eternity because you're not getting the message God is telling you. You need my son. Get on your face and ask him to save you. Maybe that's what you came to hear this morning. If in pride and anger you have never humbled yourself before the living God, maybe you don't have faith yet. I would challenge you to call upon Jesus as Lord and Savior today because you need Jesus to see God. You need Jesus to experience God's love. You need Him or you don't have God's help. How can I embrace trials? When trials begin, worship louder. Know that trials are meant to prove you have faith and to grow your faith at the same time. Third, you can write this down. Remain under the pain, and then your faith will be perfected. How can I embrace trials? Remain under the pain, then your faith will be perfected. It says in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith will produce this steadfastness, this strength to remain under. Verse 4, it says, then let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let something happen. What? 
Perseverance has a job to do. Staying under has work to do in your heart. When you stay under it, the work will get done. If you leave, the work won't get done. You have to, everything God has to pour into your life is contingent on you staying under that pain. Only then will perseverance finish its work, or it could be translated, have its full effect. Then you will reach what it says here is you will be perfect and complete. What does that mean? The word perfect here means reach its end. Reach its end. In a sense, you will never reach the end until you go on to glory. Only then will you be perfect eternally forever. So what's happening now is this trial is going to get you to the end of the lesson, the end of this class. You will be perfected in this area. Understand, though, that this isn't isn't saying that somehow you can make yourself perfect. The Bible says perfection is a future thing when Jesus comes back. It's a present thing when Jesus is knocking off rough edges. Perfection is also a past thing. The moment you ask Jesus into your life to be your Savior, guess what? The Bible says, in a sense, you become perfect in God's court of law, legally perfect in His sight. Is that good news or what? Is that, is that good news or what? When Christ comes into your life, you are perfectly righteous in God's court of law because he sees Jesus standing in your place. So faith starts you in a perfect place. Faith ends you in a perfect place. But between those two points, you will be perfected for your entire life. You are being what the Bible says, you're being conformed into the image of Jesus. The fact that perfect means reach the end implies that you won't be under this forever. That's good news. Hey, do you know God has stamped an expiration date on every trial you're facing right now? Do you know that? Do you know that? It will be over soon. Most of the trials you face in this life will end in this life. Some won't end until you move on to glory. Most of them, you'll see the end of it here. If you walk by faith in the Lord, He can make that relationship right. He can provide for your every need. He can heal up your body, give you wisdom. The words that cause brokenness and pain, He can mend up. He can do that. He wants to help you learn to wait, but He wants the time to come when He arrives. He wants you to grow in love for others and to receive the love that you need from your family. But you have to remain under. Then your faith will be perfected knowing it will be over soon, and it is serving God's purpose. God does determine the duration of all of your trials. In Revelation 2.10, Jesus talks to the church in Smyrna. He says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So this letter was delivered, like some guy was walking with it, maybe even traveling by mule. Somehow it was timed just right, snail mail, to arrive in time for someone to get up and read this. Hey, everybody, we're about to suffer. Well, if Jesus knew that, why did he bother sending a slow-motion message to warn us about it? Why didn't he just stop it? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. There's that word again. For ten days you will have tribulation. He knows the number of the days. Be faithful unto death. Some of you won't survive it. And I will give you the crown of life. Some of you are going to be with me over the next ten days, he says. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Knowing that Jesus has a purpose, that he knows the duration, that he holds your life in the palm of his hands will help you 
to endure, to remain under. It says here in verse 4 also, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Then it says lacking in nothing. That implies that something is missing. Why do I need trials? Because something's missing. You're lacking something. God is teaching you things you don't know yet. Like what? I went to Awana. I know my Bible. I don't need this trial. Basically, if you had to jot down the four major things God, God wants you to learn from every trial, it would be humility, trust, hope, and wisdom. Humility, trust, hope, and wisdom. And each one of those lessons has a villain attached to it, something that will try and derail you learning that lesson. I've got four enemies of joy here that I'd like you to write down. If you're going through a trial and you typically respond with anger, maybe that's you. Maybe anger is your first reaction. You're a shouter, you freak out on your family at your job. When it gets hard, you get loud. You're angry. Listen, if this is you, God is teaching you humility. Your anger is an enemy of your joy. Your ally is humility. God wants you to learn that he is the rightful ruler of your life. That's true on your best day. On your best day, it's already true that you need God to govern your entire life and he will rule justly and fairly like you can. That's already true. The trial shows that you don't believe that's true. So in anger, you rise up and you challenge God for the authority and control over your world. Anger is not your friend. God is humbling you. I think of King Saul in the Old Testament when I think of a man who would not let God bring trials into his life. Anytime life got hard, he freaked out. He's throwing javelins all around, killing people. Suspicious, paranoid. Doesn't trust anybody because he's going to control his own destiny. Where did it get him? Killed in battle. He didn't even trust when God told him how and when he would die. He went out in battle dressed like a fool and an arrow caught him because God is in control. Hey, if you struggle with anger when life gets hard, humble yourself and admit what's already true, that God is the rightful ruler of your life. Admit that God will do far better than you at controlling the people around you. Humble yourself and let go of your anger and your pride, and you will learn humility. What's another enemy of joy? Jot this down. Anxiety is another enemy of joy. Hey, when life gets hard, do you worry yourself sick? When life gets hard, do you let your mind race and race and race? Do you struggle with crippling fear? Do you attempt unsuccessfully to manage all of the details and uncertainties of your life? And not just yours. Do you reach over and grab the wheel of other people's lives and try and control all of what they're doing and saying? Do you micromanage others? because of your anxiety and your worry. Anxiety is not your friend. Anxiety is not your friend. Doesn't make it easier, makes it harder. Anxiety is like a guard dog in your heart, growling and barking at what? At what? At what? At anything that can make your faith stronger. You need to tell it to go lay down. You need to tell it to go lay down. Get off the bed. Because I'm going to let pain into my heart because God's going to make me stronger. Anxiety can be a way for you to cope with a lie 
about God. What's the lie? What's the lie? I can't trust him. I can't trust him. I can't trust him. He needs me. He needs me. He doesn't need you. God doesn't need your help. He'd be just fine if you were never even ever born. You're not helping the earth to stay in orbit one bit. He doesn't need you at all. So stop lying and thinking he does. He doesn't need you. Your worry is lying to you. The truth is you cannot manage the endless uncertainties of your life. You never could. That's the truth. When you let anxiety get a sinful grip over your heart, it's because you're trusting a lie, that God somehow needs your help to keep the universe in order. He doesn't. Listen, if you struggle with sinful, crippling anxiety, you need to learn to rest your heart in his presence. You're learning trust. You're learning to trust that God is sovereign over all of your fears. That's true whether you believe it or not. That's true whether you have an ulcer or not. He is able. He's trying to teach you what you're lacking. He's trying to teach you he is able. I want to mention that there is a biblical righteous form of anger. There's a biblical righteous form of worry, meaning it's, it's actually sinful if you have a real problem that you need to solve and you just don't care. You're supposed to be responsible and think through. That can be wise, okay? But you can cross over into sinful worry, sinful anxiety, sinful crippling anger, right? It's also important for me to mention that there is a medical form of anxiety. And I am not at all saying that that is something that you should deny. There are many people who need some medical help to get you um, peace in that area. But listen, even if that's you, even if that's you, all that's happening is the medication is helping you to have a fair fight with your worry, right? You still need to win. You still need to win. The medicine won't do that for you. Anger is an enemy of joy. Anxiety, I think of Moses in the Old Testament talking to a burning bush. A burning bush tells him to go and save millions of people from slavery. And what does he do? He worries to the bush. Well, what if, what if they don't believe me, bush? Well, they might think that, um, you might not have thought this through, burning bush, but they might not believe that you sent me. So, so what do I tell them then? What, what, if they, what if they just won't listen to me? I, I don't speak very well. He's worrying to a talking bush. How foolish is that? Maybe that's you. You're worrying to God. God, maybe you haven't thought through this completely yet, but let me share with you a billion things that I've thought through. He doesn't need your help. Anger, anxiety, write down the next one. An enemy of joy is depression. Depression is an enemy of joy. This one again there is a time where life, God, will level you and you will hit the bottom of the bottom. The Old Testament uses this phrase called the depths, meaning you've sunk to the very bottom of the ocean and then you keep sinking lower than that, the depths of the sea. It is the pit of despair. You will sink into this place in your life. Darkness. You can't just ward it off. There is a time where you will feel depressed. But you can sin in your depression. You can turn your sorrow 
into a protest because God isn't giving you what you want. You can hold on to sinful sorrow and you can turn your sadness into a weapon that you use to hurt God. When you withhold your praise, when you withhold your heart, you're punishing God because he's not giving you what you want. Then it's a sin. You can hurt others in your sadness. Oh, I'm just going to be miserable until you make it right. Now you have weapon-grade sadness that you're using to hurt those around you. Then it's a sin. Jonah struggled with sinful depression in the Old Testament, didn't he? Fine, I'm just going to go and sit down over here until you kill me. Whole city, whole nation just got saved. I don't care. I just need some shade. Just so sad until I get some shade. Just kill me already. He's punishing God because he didn't want the he didn't want the Ninevites to get saved. Punishing God. Maybe that's you. Just throw me over the side of the boat already. Sorry, I'm a burden to all of you. Depression will steal your joy. What does God want to teach you if you struggle with depression? He wants to teach you hope. You see, the depressed person actually isn't really struggling with the present. They have taken a DeLorean, like Back to the Future, into the future. They've already written a bad ending to the story. Then they come back and they sulk because they don't believe God's promises are true about their future. Hey, are you writing bad endings to the God stories in your life? God doesn't need you to write his stories. You're a terrible author. Put the pen down and just stop. Listen, if you're writing all of these horrible endings to the story God is writing in your life, put the pen down and just stop because you're wrong and he's awesome. He is only ever eternally good. So stop lying to yourself about how he's going to ruin your future. You're not even giving him a chance. Believe all the good promises of God will come true, and then you'll be filled with hope. The last one is this, pleasure. Anger, anxiety, depression, and pleasure. This is the person who escapes the pain, denies the pain, runs to the party, runs to the bottle, head in the sand. This is Samson. Samson would not let God make his life hard. Give me the next party. Give me the women. Give me the liquor. And it cost him his eyes. If you chase pleasure, if you refuse to deal with the problems in your marriage or in your family or at your job, if you run for the pleasure, you will learn pain. The pain you're learning is foolishness. You are not living wisely. You're running after poison, thinking it's going to help like medicine. God wants to teach you, if you run to pleasure, if you dull the pain with with the bottle, if you dull the pain by running to food, if if you dull the pain with the pills, if you, if you numb yourself with hours and hours of screens rather than dealing with your problems, if you're running away from it, God is going to teach you wisdom. He wants to teach you wisdom. He wants to teach you how foolish the pleasure of this life really is. He wants you to learn that God alone is enough to satisfy your heart with joy forever. Nothing in this world can satisfy but God. These are the lessons we learn. Humility, trust, hope. Wisdom. This is what is lacking in our faith. And in Hebrews 12, verse 11, it says this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Hey, 
Do any of these resonate with you right now? Maybe you've got two. Maybe you've got three. Maybe you've got the whole, all of them. This is your chance, your first chance really in this first sermon in the book of James. This is your chance to choose to bring your pain to God. This is your opportunity to stop with the anger, to do better than the anxiety, to lift up out of the depression. This is your chance. This is your chance to stop with the foolishness and to bring your pain to God. This is a church where we bring our pain to God. This is a church where we bring our pain to God. We don't deny it. We don't resent it. We bring it to Him. This is the first chance you have in this sermon series to bring it to God. And I want to give you a chance. I want to give you a chance to respond to this. I want to give you a chance to come forward with your pain and to pray. You can sit in your seat and pray if you want to, but I think there are some of you who know, you feel, you know, you've been keeping this away from God for far too long. I'm going to give you a chance to get up, to come forward, to pray. There's space on both sides of the stage and in the front. I want you to model for those in this room who are newer in the faith or don't have faith. I want you to model for them what it looks like to bring your pain to God. I'm going to give you a chance right now to respond to what you heard. It matters to God that you move. It matters to God when the pain is so deep and you've waited so long. It matters to God that you move. I want to invite you right now to get up, to come forward if you would like to pray. Stand up. Come forward if you would like to pray right now. Bring your pain to God right now. church where we bring the problem forward. We don't run away. Maybe you have never, ever brought your past to God. Maybe you don't even know if you're a Christian. Maybe you don't have a story of when Jesus saved you. I want you to consider, for the first time, picking all of it up and bringing it to God right now.
existed yet. Some of you want to be up here. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Why are you trying all alone? Why are you holding on to your pride? Come forward. Bring your pain to God. Come forward. Let it go in His presence. Come forward. Stop the fight. this in Jesus' name. 